Oh God, I pray for open eyes this morning by the work of your spirit. God, would you give us a posture of, of openness today? God, I pray for those who believe in Jesus and yet their love for Jesus has grown cold. God, would you renew their love for you, God? God, I pray for those who do not believe in Jesus, yet they're listening to this sermon. Lord, would you open the blind eyes of their hearts that they might believe in you, Christ? Lord, I pray as I communicate, Lord, that you would help me to worship as I preach. God, help me to enjoy you, Jesus, even as I talk about you in Colossians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I went on a mission trip that I will never forget. I was able to go to Scotland on a basketball mission trip where we uh, conducted these basketball camps and uh, were able to, to share the gospel in those uh, environments. And it was such a, a memorable experience for me and, and my, my teammates. Uh, but we not only shared the gospel, but we also did some sightseeing. We explored the, the beauty of Scotland. And obviously one of the best ways to explore a new area uh, is by going on different tours. And that's exactly what we did. In fact, we did two different tours uh, while we were in Scotland. The first one was kind of more the, the traditional tour where you, you get on this double-decker bus and you have some guy who's driving around and kind of yelling at things as, as we drive past them. And, and to be honest with you, that wasn't our favorite experience. Uh, for one, it was the first thing that we did when we got off the airplane and, and we got to Edinburgh. And I think we were up for about 20 straight hours with the time difference and the traveling. And so we were exhausted. And many of us actually ended up falling asleep on that tour. But it was also just a crowded bus with, with lots of people and it was very impersonal. Well, the second tour was much better. This second tour that we went on was a smaller group of people. So it was more personal, more intimate. The tour guide was, was very engaging. And the tour actually led us uh, through the underground city of Edinburgh. See, the, the city of Edinburgh now is built on top of the historic city that was built a few hundred years ago. And this was absolutely fascinating. Well, through my experience in, in Scotland, I learned two things about tours. Number one is that your condition deeply impacts uh, your experience of that tour. Uh, the, going on that, that first tour, the double-decker bus, and, and being so tired and, and so crowded really set us up for failure to actually enjoy that tour. But the second thing that I learned is that your tour guide can make or break uh, your tour experience. That second tour, our tour guide was engaging, it was fascinating, and it was a much more intimate group. Now, the reason why I share that with you this morning is because today we begin our new exploration of the book of Colossians. We're going to be traveling through uh, this letter uh, over the next couple of months and I want you to know that our tour guide is the Apostle Paul. He's the one who, who, had, who wrote uh, the letter of Colossians. But Paul is not going to give us a tour of Colossians like my experience on that double-decker bus. No, no, Paul is going to be the type of tour guide that we never forget. Paul is going to be personal, he's going to be intimate, he's going to show us the depths and the treasures of the person and work of Jesus like no other book in the entire Bible. There's no other book that displays the supremacy and the preeminence and the sufficiency of Jesus like the book of Colossians. And look, you might miss it, 
unless you are ready to receive what God has for you, right? Your condition will impact uh, your experience of this journey through the book of Colossians. That I want to challenge you to make sure that your heart is prepared, that you're hungry, that, that you're leaning in for all that God has for you as we travel through the book of Colossians. Because our tour guide, Paul, is going to be deeply fascinating. He's going to be interesting. He's going to be so intimate as he explains who Jesus is and how we are to live in Jesus. See, Paul's going to be such a great tour guide because even, even though we're going to go through some rabbit trails in the book of Colossians, every rabbit trail that Paul leads us through will lead us to a greater awe of Christ. So I hope that you're excited. I hope that you're ready to take this life-changing tour through the book of Colossians. Well, this morning, we're going to look at uh, the first two verses here. I want to give a kind of an overview of the letter of Colossians. And I want to do that by explaining uh, four different words. And they all start with P. We're going to look at the people. We're going to look at the place. We're going to look at the problem. And we're going to look at a preview of the letter of Colossians. Okay, so let's get to know our tour guide here. Let's look at the people of uh, this letter in uh, Colossians. In verse 1, Notice we learn uh, about our tour guide, the Apostle Paul, because he is the author of Colossians. Now, if you know Paul's story, you know he has an unbelievable testimony. Uh, The Apostle Paul went from being one of the most vicious persecutors towards Christians to then having this personal encounter and this, this really this dramatic experience of Jesus that leads to his salvation that then results to Paul being the most effective missionary in in Christianity's history. See, more than any other person, Paul is responsible for the spread and the advancement of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, really because of these three missionary journeys that he went on and through writing 13 of the 27 New Testament letters. Paul has just an unbelievable experience and example for us to follow. But when you get towards the end of Paul's ministry, we notice that he is imprisoned. And he's in prison uh, in Rome, according to Acts chapter 28. And many believe that it's in this imprisonment that Paul wrote what's been called the prison epistles. Uh, the letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon that he wrote all of those letters while being in prison. And they say that you can't accomplish anything while being uh, quarantined. And yet Paul writes these these amazing letters, most likely between the years of 60 to 62 AD. Okay, so I want you to think about our tour guide for a moment. Think about Paul and his story. He is a converted murderer of Christians. Okay, think about that for a moment who has this unbelievable, life-changing experience of Jesus. Okay, that's his perspective of Jesus. He knows personally the power of Christ. And that perspective is going to spill over in every verse in the letter of Colossians. And I can't wait to explore more of what that looks like. But notice in this greeting, uh, this letter is not only from Paul, but it's also from Timothy. Okay, and we see a similar greeting of Paul uh, grouped with Timothy in five of the other letters in the New Testament. And even though that Timothy uh, wasn't an an apostle like Paul, 
He was a, a fellow uh, worker in the gospel alongside Paul. He was a disciple of Paul who had a, a tremendous influence on the early church. Now, the third person I want to highlight, it's really a, a group of people, and that is the church at Colossae, the Colossian church. Notice that Paul calls them saints and faithful. Now, he calls them saints, not because they were perfect or because they were sinless, but because as Christians, uh, we are God's set-apart ones. We are God's holy ones. That as Christians and as believers, uh, we are to be different than the world around us because we belong to God and his family. That's what saints means here. But the fact that Paul calls them faithful brothers means that his overall disposition towards them is very positive. Okay, Paul's tone that he demonstrates in this letter is very different than his tone in, in Galatians, for example. Or in Galatians, um, Paul's tone is he's, he's kind of going after the believers there because they're starting to abandon the gospel. Well, not so much in Colossians here. He's very encouraging because they're faithfully living out their identity in Christ. Now that takes us to looking at the place. See, according to verse 2, the church was at Colossae. Now, what's so interesting about this letter is that Paul actually never visited Colossae, that he wasn't the one who actually founded this church. It was Epaphras, according to chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, verse seven. Now, Epaphras was one of the many converts uh, of Paul on Paul's third missionary journey. And it was Epaphras who uh, started this church. And so Paul is, is writing to the Colossians based on what he's hearing. Now, Colossae during this time was located in a Roman province of Asia Minor. It was one of three cities located in the Lycus Valley. And so you can see here on this map, you have Colossae, you have Hierapolis and Laodicea kind of grouped there together. And these three little cities, they formed an important trade route. It was kind of like a, a virtual meeting point between the east and the west. And at one time, Colossae had been a very large, populous city with, with a lot of influence. But when Paul wrote to the Colossian church, it had just become kind of this small town in contrast, especially to its nearest neighbor, Laodicea, which was just 10 miles away. Now, the location of this church does impact what's going on in this church. Because in uh, Colossae, it was filled with, with different cultural and religious elements that were trying to kind of mingle together. And you can see in Paul's writing here, the temptations that the believers here were faced with, that they were being kind of exposed and distracted with all of these other religious and cultural elements to take the center off Jesus. And you can see that in particular in the second half of chapter two. <clears throat> but if you notice in verse two here, Paul tells us that the Colossian believers were not only in Colossae, but they were also in Christ. Okay, so, so Paul tells us that, that these believers had two different locations. And look, this is classic Paul. Paul does this in almost every single one of his letters, that he wants believers to know that you are in two locations, 
that you have a, a spiritual standing position that's in Christ, that's, uh, that's seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, hidden in Jesus, which means that you are perfect, you are righteous, and you are blameless. But you also have this practical position, uh, which is wherever you are physically right now. And so the believers here, they are both in Christ and they are also at Colossae. And so much of Paul's writings is him just bridging this gap between our standing position and our practical position. That Paul is, is emphasizing again and again in his letters how our standing position in Jesus must impact uh, our, our practical position. That for us, if we are in Christ, then that should deeply impact the way that we live practically in the here and now. We're going to see that throughout this letter. Now that takes us to the problem that Paul addresses throughout this letter uh, to the Colossians. If you notice here, the last line in Paul's greeting, he says, grace and peace from God our Father. Now, Paul wants them to have grace. He wants them to have this undeserved, this unmerited favor from God, but he also wants them to have peace, which is this idea of of wholeness or or harmony. And both come from God. Both are, are impossible to experience outside of God the Father giving that to them. And the reason that Paul is wanting them to have grace and peace is because of the problem that they face and the problem that Paul is addressing. See, in thinking about the problem that Paul addresses here, it's important to know that there are no direct Old Testament quotes by Paul in this entire level, uh, letter. In fact, there are really no even uh, allusions to the Old Testament throughout this entire letter, which is very rare for Paul in his writings. But that speaks to who his audience was. See, the majority of those who lived in this area during this time were actually Gentiles. And so I think we can safely assume that the majority of the believers at this church in Colossae were actually Gentiles, which created a very interesting dynamic within this church. Because you have these believers, these mainly they were Gentile believers who are trying to live out their position in Jesus and yet they were being influenced by these Jewish religious elements and also this new age mysticism that was rooted in Greek philosophy. And so it's this dynamic that that Paul is speaking into as he addresses the problem in this letter. See, the issue that Paul is addressing is what theologians call the Colossian heresy. It was some kind of blend between Judaism and Christianity and Gnostic philosophy. And it was probably presented to this church as as an advancement or an improvement on the gospel that Epaphras first preached to them. And so it, it sought really to merge kind of the best of all of these different worlds. Let's take the best from Christianity. Let's take the best from Judaism. Let's take the best from Greek philosophy. Now, on the ground, in practice, what the Colossian heresy looked like is that it looked and it sounded just like Christianity. And this is what it made it so difficult, is that even though it looked and sounded just like Christianity, it tried to emphasize even more so discipline 
and rule following and these spiritual and mystic experiences. It was very much this Jesus and all of these other things in order to be accepted before God, not Jesus, period. And so the danger here is that the the focus of Christ being the center started to shift in this church. But it wasn't as if they stopped believing in Jesus. No, no, they, they didn't even flat out deny Jesus. It's that the focus and the center started to shift away from Jesus. Look, the, the Colossians heresy here was really just an outgrowth of what happens when Christ is no longer the center. See, the, the, the heresy here, it wanted to detract the believers here away from the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus. Now this takes us to uh, the preview because the way that Paul addresses the problem here is he wants to highlight all over the place the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus. Okay, so let's kind of take a preview of what to expect in this letter. I just want to maybe talk about Colossians here from, uh, from 40,000 feet. I think that's important to kind of see kind of the larger themes of the letter before we uh, take a deep dive into the weeds and the details over the next uh, couple of months. But I want you to take a look at this image here. It kind of gives a preview of what the letter of Colossians is all about from kind of a higher level. And you can see here that the letter of Colossians is really broken up into two different sections. That you have chapters 1 and 2, which form kind of the foundation of the letter, where Paul kind of establishes more of the theology of Colossians. And then chapters 3 and 4, you see kind of the, the practical implications that Paul leans into. Now, as we think about a preview of this letter, I want to point out just three key themes that we are going to see over and over again. The first theme that we see is the preeminence of Christ in all things. Now, the preeminence of Christ means that Jesus is completely superior over all, that there is no one and no thing that is in the same league of Jesus. In fact, Paul is going to talk about the preeminence of Jesus by highlighting the name of Jesus over 30 different times in just these four chapters. And I love what Paul does here in talking about the preeminence of Jesus because he actually explains its impact in our lives in a practical way. He doesn't just say that Jesus is preeminent or Jesus is supreme. No, Paul actually connects the preeminence of Jesus across all of these different categories and areas of our lives. In other words, if you thought about the preeminence of Jesus like an onion for a moment, and the center of that onion is the person and the work of Jesus, then what Paul is going to do throughout this letter is he's going to add layer after layer of how the preeminence of Jesus connects to all kinds of different categories. For example, what we're going to see is Paul connecting the preeminence of Jesus to his deity, that he's the image of the invisible God, chapter 1, verse 15. He's going to connect the preeminence of Jesus to creation, that he is the sovereign creator of the universe, chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. 
Paul's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus to our redemption in chapter one, verses 20 through 22. He's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus uh, to the spiritual realm, that he is head over all principalities and spiritual powers. Chapter one, verse 18, and chapter two, verse 14. He's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus to the church. Colossians 1, uh, chapter one, verse 18. It's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus to the fact that Jesus's presence lives within believers, the the Christian's hope, uh, chapter one, verse 27. He's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus to our sanctification that we're rooted and built up in him, chapter two, verse seven. He's gonna connect the preeminence of Jesus to our different relationships in Colossians chapter three. Look, over and over again, Paul is going to peel back layer after layer of who Jesus is so that our mouths drop to the floor at looking at Jesus's unmatched supremacy. And look, this is gonna be so helpful for us because I know many of us, if not all of us, would say that Jesus is great, right? We would say that Jesus is supreme. But how many of us can connect and articulate the way that Jesus's preeminence impacts all of these different categories, right? Like how can Jesus's preeminence impact our relationships and our marriages and our parenting? How does Jesus's preeminence impact creation and the spiritual realm and the church and all of these different categories? Paul is going to help us understand that and to be able to live out the powerful truth of Jesus's preeminence. And he's specifically going to do that in chapters three and four by connecting the supremacy of Jesus to the submission of Jesus in all things. In other words, if Jesus truly is preeminent over all, then we should be obedient to Jesus in all things. So these first two chapters are going to be more foundational in unpacking what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And then the last two chapters get at the practical implications across these different arenas. So I just want to encourage you on the front end here, I want you to anticipate being challenged by the preeminence of Jesus. I want you to anticipate the best that you can being confronted with the preeminence of Jesus. Okay, so the preeminence of Jesus is not just something that should lead us to worship, but the preeminence of Jesus is also something that's going to deeply convict us right? Like how does the preeminence of Jesus impact how you are living your life? How does it impact your relationships and your friendships and your marriage and your parenting? How does the preeminence of Jesus impact your finances and how you invest your money? How does the preeminence of Jesus impact your words and and what you say on social media? See, Paul is going to help connect. Really, he's going to make a direct line between our orthodoxy, right thinking, with orthopraxy, which is right living. And it hinges on us understanding the preeminence of Jesus in all things. Look, I'm so thankful for the Apostle Paul here. I'm so thankful to have this experienced tour guide 
because time and time again, he is going to hold up and lift up the preeminence of Jesus so that we can see Jesus in all that he is. And as a result, we can be changed when we see him for all that he is. Right? You've heard before that, that you become what you behold. And so Paul is going to help us behold the supremacy of Jesus. Because when we behold him for all that he's worth, we are then transformed into looking more and more like Jesus. And like, isn't that what we need right now? When we look at the condition of our world and, and our country right now, we see so much division, we see hatred, we see racism, we see even police being mistreated. And so much of that can, can start to trickle into the church. And slowly, the center of the church can slowly move away from being centered on Christ. And it can happen so slowly. And yet our tour guide, Paul, is not going to let that happen as we travel through Colossians. Paul is going to help us in a very meaningful way how to keep the main one, the main thing. And I think we need that as a church right now to be focused on Jesus. Because once we see the preeminence of Jesus, that's going to impact all of those other issues. That's going to impact the division that we see in our world. That's going to impact how we understand racism. That's going to impact how we understand politics. And so it starts with the preeminence of Jesus in all things. Well, another key theme, number two here that we see that we need to be on the lookout for is understanding our union of Christ. Union of Christ. Now this happens when individuals uh, put their faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are now united in him. Okay, so you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. I think this is one of the deepest and most joyous mysteries in the Christian life. And I think it might be one of the most important doctrines in all of the Christian life. That Jesus not only resides in believers through his spirit, but what the union of Christ means is that if you are in Jesus, you receive everything that Jesus receives. Because you're united in him and one with him, you receive his righteousness. You receive his inheritance. You receive this, this unconditional acceptance into God's family. You receive the Father's love for you. And because you're united in Jesus, there's nothing that can separate you from God, right? And so this theme that we're going to see is communicated through the phrase of in Christ or in him, which shows up 10 different, 10 different times throughout uh, this letter. See, all throughout this letter, Paul is trying to define who we are as Christians. And Paul is going to outline our identity through those two words of being in Christ. And he's going to connect it to being united in Christ, chapter two, verse two. He's gonna connect it to being complete in Christ, uh, chapter two, verse 10, to walking in Christ, chapter two, verse six, to being rooted in Christ, chapter two, verse seven, to being built up in Christ, chapter two, uh, verse seven, to being dead in Christ, chapter two, verse 20, to being buried with Christ and being raised with Christ in chapter three, uh, verse one. 
Look, Paul is emphasizing again and again that you are Christ, right? Like your identity, who you are and what defines you is found in Jesus, being united in Jesus. And like, this is so important because the way that you understand your identity, the way that you understand who you are and what defines you directly impacts the way that you live your life and the decisions that you make. And what Paul is saying here is that you are not defined by your career. You are not defined by the mistakes and the sins of your past. You are not defined by your relationships, by your friendships, by your marriage and your parenting. You're not defined by your political affiliations. You're not defined by by the failure that you've experienced during quarantine of, of being a bad spouse or being a bad friend or being a bad parent. What Paul is saying here is those things do not define you. Who you are, what your identity is, is found in Jesus and Jesus in you, the hope of glory. And look, what that means is that if you are united in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you've already died in him. You've already been raised in him. You're already seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, hidden in Jesus, which means you are righteous. You are unconditionally loved. You are accepted before the Father. And that's, that, that's an, ex, an experience that you have because of nothing that you have done. It's not something that you have earned. It's all because of being united in Jesus by faith. And look, when, when that truth seeps down deep inside of your soul, that changes you, that frees you, that that gives you freedom. It, It unlocks the shackles created by all of these other false identities that try to define who we are and what our worth actually is. And so Paul comes in here and says, no, you are defined by who you are in Jesus. And we're gonna look at that throughout this letter. So we've seen these two themes so far that we're going to take a look at in this book. We've seen the preeminence of Christ. We've seen union of Christ. And now number three, the the third key theme is the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. I think we most clearly see in uh, in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, these are the verses that I would consider to be kind of the summary verses of this entire letter. Very important verses. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I think you see this theme of fullness in chapter one, verse 19, which says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look, the way that Paul addresses the fullness of Christ is basically him saying that every ounce of deity resides in Jesus. And Paul is going to do that throughout this letter so that the Colossian believers think for a moment and they say, wait a second, if we believe in the preeminence of Christ over all things, and we are united in that Jesus, we are one in that Jesus, 
then that means that there is nothing that I lack, right? If Jesus is the definition of fullness and I'm united in that Jesus, then I don't lack grace. I don't lack wisdom. I don't lack truth. I don't lack strength. I don't lack satisfaction. I don't lack comfort. I don't lack any spiritual resource. This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. And especially for the Colossian believers, when you get to chapter two, And Paul says to them, look, don't let others pass judgment on you for what you eat or drink or what days that you're trying to observe. See, Paul is saying that because he's essentially saying, look, don't let anybody tell you that you need something else beyond Jesus in order for you to be whole, in order for you to be complete, and in order for you to be satisfied. You have everything that you need in the person and the work of Jesus. There is nothing that you lack. And so look, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, maybe you need to hear this loud and clear, that there is nothing that you lack in order to be faithful to God because the fullness of God resides in Jesus and you are united in Jesus through your faith. See, I think what Paul wants is he wants the fullness of our lives to be Christ. He wants the fullness of our church to be Christ. He wants the fullness of our community to be Christ because the fruit of your life is dependent on the filling of your life. That what you are full of is what is produced in your words, in your actions, and in who you are. And Paul is saying, make it Jesus. Keep Jesus the main thing. And that's what we're going to see in this book of Colossians. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you that Jesus is enough. God, in a world that is searching for purpose and truth and satisfaction, God, we praise you that we have all of those things and more in Jesus. God, I thank you that in Jesus, we have the fullness of life and joy. God, we thank you for this letter. God, we pray that you would bless our church with it. God, that you would give us a deeper love and appreciation and worship for him. And God, I pray that as we see Jesus more clearly, that that would change the way that we live. So God, would you help us with that? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.